Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Again, this week we have a very interesting program and it's very timely. We have Tom Jensen on, who's the Director of Public Policy Polling, which is a company that is based in Raleigh, North Carolina, but does polling all across the country and is well recognized as one of the the, uh, very uh, good pollsters as far as coming up with the the right uh, data that uh, gives people uh, uh, some insight into what's going on. And of course, right now we've got a lot of elections going on. So let's, uh, first of all, welcome uh, Tom to the program. Tom, nice to have you back. It's good to be with you, Mr. Curtis. Uh, well, you you know, yeah, I know I'm older than you are, but you don't have to call me Mr. Curtis. You can call me, uh, hey, you, if you want to, that'd be just fine. You, you, uh, have, so, you have earned a very high level of respect. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, let's talk about the uh, primary election here in North Carolina. Uh, we have, of course, 14 congressional seats up now that we have gained a seat. And uh, we have, for the most part, uh, the, the primary probably, in most cases, will be uh, the primary winners will probably be the likely winners in the fall in most cases. Uh, we will ask you which ones might be competitive in the fall. But first of all, let's just look at the, t- the primaries here in the, in the spring election, both parties. So why don't you sort of go down the districts and tell us, I'm sure you've done some polling, uh, how it looks here in North Carolina. Sure. Well, obviously, the biggest amount of attention has gone to the primary race for U.S. Senate. On the Democratic side, there's really not very much uh, suspense about that. Sherry Beasley should win the nomination by a very significant margin. Uh, It actually is increasingly looking like the Republican primary for Senate might not be that competitive either. Uh, You have three significant candidates in that race, former Governor Pat McCrory, Congressman Ted Budd from the triad, and Uh, uh, former Congressman Mark Walker, also from the triad. And uh, Pat McCrory, as a former governor, started out that primary contest with a very significant advantage, I think simply because he had much higher name recognition than the other folks running. Uh, But the most important thing that happened in that race was when Donald Trump uh, endorsed Ted Budd last summer to be the uh, candidate to replace Richard Burr in the Senate. And after that, McCrory was still ahead in the polls, but it got a lot closer. And basically, as Ted Budd has become more and more well-known, and as Donald Trump has gone more and more to bat for Ted Budd, it's actually turned into a little bit of a runaway. Uh, There have been a handful of polls in the last few weeks that have had Ted Budd leading Pat McCrory by over 20 points uh, in the primary election for U.S. Senate. So, uh, it seems un- unless something really wild happens in the last two days of the race, uh, like the general election for U.S. Senate will be a race between Ted Budd on the Republican side and Sherry Beasley on the Democratic side. It's really going to be a pretty embarrassing performance for Pat McCrory as a, a former governor to not only lose the primary, but lose it by a significant amount. Uh, and I think in addition to losing the primary, he's kind of lost his dignity, too. He was a really well-respected figure in the state when he was sort of a center interest mayor of Charlotte, uh, got a lot of Democratic support. uh, And the first two times he ran for governor, he got a lot of crossover Democratic support. Uh, But now he's sort of moved far to the right, but those far right voters have still rejected him. And now he's kind of in a position where nobody respects him. So I would expect that this will be the end of his political career. 
Well, of course, that's basically the problem that any Republican faces. He's got to get out of the Republican primary, which is basically uh, now with all the large number of uh, registered unaffiliates, uh, very solidly uh, right wing conservative. So uh, I guess what you do is you run as hard as you can to the right, and then you try to get back to the center when the uh, if you get out of the primary. Can we anticipate that Bud will try to go back to the center if he uh, is the, indeed the uh, Republican nominee? Will he try to sort of slide back in there? To uh, I, I guess the question I'm really asking is, what are the uh, registered unaffiliates doing in this in this primary? Well, unaffiliated, first of all, for the most part, just don't vote that much in primary elections. But unaffiliated voters, more generally, tend to vote for whichever party is out of power. So I expect that this fall you'll see Ted Budd do pretty well with unaffiliated voters, even if he doesn't do much to try to move back to the center, because I think the overwhelming thing that unaffiliated voters will be trying to vote for is change. People are not happy with how things are going in Washington. They don't like Joe Biden. They don't like the Democrats in Congress. Uh, Because of that, uh, to some extent, it doesn't even matter what the Republicans put up, because people, I think, are just in a mindset where they want to vote Republican. I do think that Ted Budd is a slightly weaker candidate for the general election uh, than Pat McCrory would have been for the Republicans, because I still think Pat McCrory had a small vestige of crossover support across party lines, especially in the Charlotte metro area where people sort of remember him as that moderate mayor. But the simple reality about the political climate that we're in right now is the country is about eight points to the right of where it was in the fall of 2020. And of course, Republicans won the Senate race in the fall of 2020, even when the political climate was a lot better for Democrats than it is now. So it's sort of an oversimplification. But if you take that one point win that the Republicans had in the Senate race in 2020 and move that eight points to the right, you would expect Ted Budd to start out the general election against Sherry Beasley as about an eight point favorite. And certainly Democrats will do everything that they can to tar Ted Budd as an extremist and to um, play up his ties to Trump as much as they can. But of course, then you also still have to remember that Trump won North Carolina. Uh, So Trump may not be popular, but he won the state anyway. Uh, So we've been in a run here in North Carolina where all of our major races have been really competitive, 2020, 2016, 2014, 2012. The last time we really had a runaway race for U.S. Senator Governor was uh, Richard Burr's first re-election in 2010. And Democrats will certainly do anything that they can to stop that. Uh, But I think that uh, it's going to start out in a position where Republicans have a pretty substantial advantage. We've talked so much over the last few election cycles about North Carolina being toss-up, toss-up, toss-up. This is a case where because of that national political climate, Republicans definitely start out with the advantage. Nationwide, of course, I guess uh, one third of the U.S. Senate positions are open. uh, And right now the Democrats have a very slight uh, majority, uh, counting the speaker, um, and have not been able to really push the Democratic agenda because usually there's one or more Democrats who on one or more issues will say, well, wait a minute, I can't go along with the Democratic position on this. So what are you, uh, how, are you polling in other states and or what are you seeing as far as what your forecast is for how the United States Senate will line up next year when uh, the uh, newly elected uh, senators are installed? 
Yeah, we talked about, you know, how the country's moved about eight points to the right of 2020. There are three Democratic senators who are up for reelection next year, or excuse me, this fall in Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia that are all states that Joe Biden won by less than two points. So just based on that eight point movement in the political climate, you would expect all three of those states to vote Republican for the Senate this year. Now, Pennsylvania is having its primary for the Senate uh, on Tuesday as well. And I I think what happens there is gonna be really telling about what might happen for the country as a whole this fall. It looks like Pennsylvania Republicans are gonna end up nominating somebody who is very, very extreme uh, for the US Senate. They're either gonna nominate Dr. Oz, who's extremely unpopular with the general electorate, but has the Trump endorsement, or they're gonna uh, uh, nominate this woman named Kathy Barnett, who basically has no qualifications to be a US Senator whatsoever. So Pennsylvania is gonna be an amazing test case on do candidates matter at all? Democrats are gonna nominate the strongest candidate they possibly could have nominated. Uh, I think in Pennsylvania, Republicans are going to nominate the weakest candidate they possibly could have nominated in Pennsylvania. Uh, And if you made me say right now, okay, Democrats weakest candidate, excuse me, Democrats strongest candidate versus Republicans weakest candidate, who do you think is going to win in a 50-50 state like Pennsylvania? If I had to put money on it, I'd say the Republicans weakest candidate beats the Democrats' strongest candidate because the political climate is so bad for Democrats right now. So if you just base it on the political climate, Republicans get to at least 53 to 47 majority in the Senate between Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. And then they have a decent chance of winning in places like New Hampshire and even Colorado that were more Democratic and possibly getting Republicans to 55 seats. Democrats have chances for offense, especially in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, and to a lesser extent in North Carolina and Florida. But the big question is just going to be, Do Republicans nominate bad enough candidates in these key Senate races that Democrats can win when voters are definitely inclined to vote Republican? There is a precedent for this. In 2010, Democrats won some Senate races they really shouldn't have won because Republicans nominated such extreme candidates. My feeling is that over the last 12 years, the country has gotten so much more polarized that it may not matter if Republicans nominate really bad candidates anymore. They're really bad, really extreme candidates might just win anyway uh, because of the overall climate. But that's the big question for how big of a majority Republicans are gonna end up with is does it matter if they nominate these extreme candidates or not? My guess is no, but we'll see if Democrats can work that effectively. So basically your uh, feeling is, and of course, uh, I, I fear that very often we don't realize what a difference it makes and who is in charge of the Senate, uh, because uh, all, you know all the committee chairmanships change uh, to the party that is in control. Uh, so you're saying that uh, next year, 2023, we should have a United States Senate that will be predominantly Republican, either 53-47 or maybe as much as 55-45. Is that what you're basically saying? Yeah, unless there's a dramatic change in the political climate here over the next six months, that's definitely what we're headed for. And this is pretty consistent with what happens historically. It's just a reality that President Biden's not very popular, generally has about a 40 to 42 percent approval rating, generally about 52, 53 percent of voters disapprove of him nationally. And in the key states for Senate races this year, his numbers are actually a little weaker than that. Um, 
And when people don't like the president in that president's midterm election, they vote for the other party. Uh, so that's the dynamic that Democratic candidates across the country are going to have to be dealing with this year. We've got about a minute to answer this question. Are there any issues that could dramatically change between now and November that would change that forecast? Well, I think the thing that's killing Democrats the most right now is inflation. So if gas prices get control under control, if other things that have really increased in costs get under control, there actually are things that Democrats can point to that have gone well in Biden's first year and a half in office. Jobs numbers are very strong. Um, some economic indicators are very strong when you look at Biden's first term. And it's just going to be a question of whether Democrats can effectively sell those things because right now they can't effectively sell those things because voters are more concerned about inflation, more concerned about gas prices. If inflation and gas prices don't get turned around, I don't think there's a way for Democrats to get things turned around between now and November. But if people feel better about the economy in six months, Democrats might have more of a fighting chance than it looks like they do now. Tom Jensen is our guest. He is the director of public policy polling, and he is speaking from uh, uh, from a position of doing polling all across the country on these issues. And we're going to turn to the, the uh, House of Representatives next and uh, get his views on how North Carolina will vote and how the uh, country will vote. We'll do that right after these messages. As an 18-year-old, I let my mistakes kind of take over my life. I was 0.5 credits away from completing high school, and I didn't do it. Ten years later, at age 28, Jackie finished her high school diploma. When I found out that I was pregnant, I know that I had to do something for myself if I wanted to make her a better person and provide a better life for her. My family never stopped pushing for me to be better because they knew what I could become and who I could become as a person. My support team is amazing. The educational director, my sister, and even my seven-year-old daughter has just been more than the support that I could ask for. I've been given an opportunity, and I'm just thankful for it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. It's important for you to talk to someone about it. I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. Again, we uh, welcome Tom Jensen to our to our guest position this week. Tom is the Director of Public Policy Polling, a uh, well-recognized polling firm that does work all across the country, but is based right here in Raleigh. As a matter of fact, based right beside our studios. And, and so it's always convenient to have Tom, even though we're doing the program actually by Zoom today. Uh, he is a native of Ann Arbor, Michigan, but he's been living in North Carolina since he was a graduate of UNC at Chapel Hill and and uh, has been on our program numerous times. And we're going to talk about th some uh, polling that he is doing on things that are not political. But since we have a, a primary coming up uh, right around the corner, we are focusing a lot more on uh, the upcoming primary.
primary election. So let's let's look at the 14 congressional races here in North Carolina. Both, uh, as we said earlier in the program, in many cases, the uh, districts are set up so that the uh, the uh, winner of the primary actually has a king-size advantage to win the general election. So let's start with uh, the, the uh, districts that uh, might be competitive. Uh, and if you'll just go down those and, and tell us who you think the Democratic nominee will be and who the Republican nominee will be and how that might turn out. And then we'll get to those uh, districts where it looks like the uh, winner of the primary may well be the, uh, the person who turns out to be the winner in November. So, Tom, take over. <laughs> well, there's two districts out of our 14 that are potentially competitive for the general election in North Carolina. The first one is the first congressional district in the northeastern part of the state uh, where, JK, where G.K. Butterfield is retiring after almost 20 years of service. That's a district that voted for Joe Biden by about nine or 10 points. And in a normal political climate, you would expect that a district that voted for Joe Biden by nine or 10 points, Democrats would be pretty safe. But in this climate where things for Democrats are eight, nine points worse than they were in 2020, that means a district that voted for Joe Biden by nine or 10 points all of a sudden ends up looking pretty competitive for the general election. Uh, and beyond that, uh, North Carolina's first congressional district is uh, very rural uh, and it's the least educated district in the state. And what's significant about that is that over the last six years, there's been this increasingly large uh, educational divide in politics nationally, where more well-educated voters have gotten more and more Democratic, less educated voters have gotten more and more Republican. Well, that trend does not work well for Democrats in the first district because there are very few highly educated voters for Democrats to do better with, but there are a lot of less well-educated voters for Republicans to do better with. So it's somewhere that even as the country as a whole moves eight, nine points to the right, in a rural district like the North Carolina first, you may see things move even more dramatically in a Republican direction. Uh, so I have more insight about the Democratic primary in that district than the Republican primary. In the Democratic primary, you have two, uh, one current and one former state senator facing off. The current state senator, Don Davis, is sort of more the establishment candidate on the Democratic side. He's been endorsed by uh, Representative Butterfield to replace him. Uh, then you have uh, former state Senator Erica Smith, who's also running. She ran for U.S. Senate two years ago and put in a respectable performance in the uh, statewide Democratic primary for Senate. This race has tended to be very close uh, over the last few months. Uh, so it's just a question here at the end of whether people want more sort of the establishment candidate like Don Davis or if they want somebody who's running a little bit more uh, from the left like Erica Smith. What we're seeing nationally right now is that Democrats are moving a little bit more toward establishment candidates than maybe they did in the 2018 and 2020 election cycles. So if you made me put a bet on it, I'd say Don Davis wins, but uh, not totally sure about that because I haven't polled it recently. You also have a competitive Republican primary. We, let's, talk, let's talk a little bit about who that uh, candidate will end up running against in the general election on the, uh, on the Republican side. Yeah, so you have uh, several people running on the Republican side. Uh, some of the ones who are better known, Sandy Robertson is the mayor of Rocky Mount, uh, which is pretty impressive to elect a Republican as mayor in what is generally a Democratic city. So you have him in the mix. 
Uh, Sandy Smith was a candidate for Congress a, a couple years ago who ended up putting a much more competitive election in than people really expected. Uh, so those are two of the people that I've heard about uh, more frequently on the Republican side in this race, even though we haven't actually polled it. Uh, but my sense is that whoever emerges on the Democratic side and whoever emerges on the Republican side, that is going to be the most competitive congressional race in North Carolina this fall. I think that's where you'll see a fair amount of national investment. Um, and I think that it, it'll basically start out as a toss up where uh, either side is going to have a fighting chance of winning and it's going to be a very close race. You said there's a second uh, congressional district that's uh, competitive. Let's talk yeah. about that one. The second district that's potentially competitive is the 13th congressional district, which is sort of based around Southern Wake County, but also takes in uh, other counties adjacent to Wake County. It includes Johnston County, for instance, and that sort of thing. This is a district that on paper in an average election cycle should be really competitive because Joe Biden won it by a couple points in 2020. But when you think about the fact that the political climate has moved so far to the right for this year. I think most districts across the country that Joe Biden won by less than five points are gonna end up going to the Republican side this time around. And these are the kinds of places that, uh, for instance, let's say that North Carolina has these same districts for the whole next decade. This is somewhere that if Republicans elect a president in 2024 and everybody's cranky at the Republicans in 2026, this is somewhere that Democrats will have a great chance of winning in 2026, but in the political climate where there's a Democrat in the White House and voters are cranky at the Democrats, it's going to be very hard for a Democrat to win here this year, I think, even though it's so competitive on paper. So on the Democratic side, you have a race between current state Senator Wiley Nickel and former state Senator Sam Searcy who both represented Wake County in the state Senate. I haven't seen any recent polling to know who's likely to come out ahead on that. I also don't know how much it matters. Uh, in the Republican primary, uh, a couple of the better known candidates who are in the mix are former Congresswoman uh, Renee Elmers, who was in Congress for uh, four terms before uh, she ended up sort of getting drawn out of her district when new maps had to be drawn in 2018. And then you have Bo Hines running, who's a young, a uh, former football player uh, who definitely has the blessing of sort of the uh, Trump kind of people in a lot of cases. And he was initially sort of seen as being somebody who would be very much in the model of Madison Cawthorn out in the mountains. Uh, certainly Madison Cawthorn has had a, a very bad few months of news where I don't know if Bo Hines wants to tie himself to Cawthorn to cite the quite the same extent that he might have wanted to a few months ago. But Whoever uh, emerges on the Democratic side in that district and whoever emerges on the Republican side, I think you'll see Republicans start out with the advantage for the fall. Is there a likely, is it likely close enough that there might be a runoff in that race? Because it only, what, it only takes, what, 40% now or to avoid a runoff? Now you only need 30% to avoid a runoff. 30%. And I, I think that that does reduce the likelihood of runoffs. And I think we'll definitely get into that issue some more when we talk about Madison Cawthorn out in the mountains, because I think he possibly is gonna get bailed out by the fact that the runoff threshold is 30% instead of 40% now, because I can sort of see him getting 31% in a way that I think it might be hard for him to get to 41%. So uh, take a look at the, the rest of the primaries uh, within the party. Are there any 
competitive races that you need to point out as far as uh, either Republican or Democratic candidates in the other 12 districts? Well, I think that we're going to have a couple new Democratic members of Congress who are going to uh, be tra- the districts are Democratic enough that there's not a very good chance of a competitive general election. Uh, in North Carolina's fourth congressional district, that's mostly Durham and Orange County, the three primary candidates are State Senator Valerie Fushi, uh, who's sort of the establishment candidate. You have Durham County Commissioner Nita Alam, who uh, is sort of more running in the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, AOC mold as, as sort of more a progressive candidate. And then you have Clay Aiken running, who I'm not really sure what his angle is, other than the fact that he was famous 20 years ago, but he was famous 20 years ago. So that still gets him mentioned maybe more than another candidate with his qualifications would. Uh, I actually think for Clay Aiken, the only suspense is going to be whether he finishes in third place or fourth place. Uh, He's closer to fourth place in the polls than he is to second place. Uh, I expect that Valerie Fushi is... I was getting ready to say, who do you have leading? Uh, Valerie Fushi, I think, is the front runner for the seat. Uh, she released an internal poll last week that had her up by about 20 points over Nita Alam. Uh, she has had a, a great deal of outside spending that has really worked to her benefit. She's actually raised less money herself uh, than either Alam or Aiken have, but has had by far and away the most money spent to benefit her campaign because of this outside spending. And I think that's probably going to be enough to end up putting her over the top. So I think that we're probably going to have a Congresswoman Fushi. Uh, and then the other new Democratic member of Congress from North Carolina uh, will be Jeff Jackson from a new Democratic-leaning district that's centered around Mecklenburg County. Uh, and the Jeff Jackson story is kind of a good example of what happens when you're a team player. He was initially running for the U.S. Senate. He had been a, a, a state senator from Charlotte who had been very well regarded on social media uh, and was running for the U.S. Senate and finally decided to step aside and just let Sherry Beasley uh, win the primary without a a great deal of difficulty. Uh, And people really weren't sure what Jeff Jackson's next move might be after he stepped aside. And then all of a sudden there was this new congressional district based around Charlotte that will elect a Democrat and the field cleared for him. So he sort of had karma come back around Uh, in his direction. He cleared the field so Sherry Beasley could be the candidate for Senate. Uh, And then other people who, other serious people who might have run for that congressional seat in Charlotte cleared the field so that uh, Jeff Jackson could um, win his seat. So uh, Jeff Jackson and Valerie Fushi will be the new Democratic members. So when you total it all up, what will North Carolina's uh, delegation look like? Uh, uh, 10-4, 9-5, what? It's either going to be 9-5 or 8-6. On the Democratic side, you're definitely going to have Deborah Ross, Jeff Jackson, Valerie Fushi, um, Kathy Manning, those four. Uh, And then I guess it's just a question of whether you're also going to get on the Democratic side, uh, the people running in the first district and the 13th district or not. So it's sort of a, I think it's a somewhere between 10 to four and eight to six and sort of how this is going to break down. So uh, just to quickly run through the races that are not competitive. And then I think uh, we could maybe go in greater depth in the next segment about the 11th district, which is the most interesting congressional primary. But 
Uh, in the second district, Democrat Deborah Ross, not competitive primary or general. Third district, Republican Greg Murphy, not competitive primary or general. Same thing for Virginia Fox in the fifth district. She'll get another term as a Republican. Kathy Manning in the sixth district as a Democrat will get another turn. David Rouser in the seventh district as a Republican will get another round. Dan Bishop uh, as a Republican in the eighth district will get another round. Richard Hudson as a Republican in the ninth district will get another round. Patrick McHenry in the 10th, uh, Alma Adams in the 12th. Uh, and then the one we haven't really touched on yet is that 11th district, which is probably the most interesting primary in the state with all of Madison Cawthorn's drama over the last few weeks and months. And gobs and gobs of candidates, and they have a pile running. <laughs> which may be so, what saves okay. them. So we'll talk a little bit about that in the next segment. Uh, also, we want to talk about the uh, Biden approval rating here in North Carolina and across the country. Uh, and the future of the GOP and and uh, former President Trump. And we'll do all of that when we return with our guest, Tom Jensen, who's the director of public policy polling. And we'll do that right after these messages. Hey, Dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Can I touch this? Where does sand come from? Is this tree good for climbing? What happens if I mix these two things together? How are babies made? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step, but you can do more. Always keep your guns locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Storing your guns securely is the best way to prevent family fire, including unintentional shootings. For more information on safe gun storage and ways to keep your family safe, visit endfamilyfire.org. That's endfamilyfire.org. What do we keep in the attic? What's this thing called? Can I ride my bike backwards? Like I said, kids are curious. It's up to us to keep them safe. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry. I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look. Flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back on uh, Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week, Tom Jensen, who does incredible polling under, with the firm Public Policy Polling, which is we've said is located right here in Raleigh, as a matter of fact, next door to our studios. And uh, he's been our guest numerous times uh, since the primary election is right around the corner. We're focusing mainly on, on the outcome of the primary election, first of all, in, in North Carolina and then across the country. We, uh, we have a little bit of follow-up work to do on the House. Uh, you gave us an overall view of the House we want to get to that 11th uh, district, which is very interesting. But first of all, let's look nationally, because, of course, all Congress is up for re-election. So right now, the Democrats have control. Will they maintain that control or no, will it go Republican? Republicans will definitely get control of the U.S. House. And it's just a question of how large that majority will end up being. Uh, it's possible that Democrats won't lose quite as many seats as they did in the 2010 midterm for the simple reason that there are so few competitive districts across the country. 
Uh, one thing that was sort of an outgrowth of redistricting this year in a lot of states was that the Democratic seats got more Democratic and the Republican seats got more Republican, such that there really just aren't that many seats that are very competitive. And when there aren't that many seats that are very competitive, it, you end up in a situation where it's maybe more plausible for Republicans to pick up something like 30 or 40 seats than it is for them to pick up something like 60 or 70 seats uh, like they have in some previous midterms, because there just aren't enough seats that are plausibly competitive at all uh, for 60 or 70 seats to change parties. But uh, there's a lot of districts across the country that maybe on paper are toss-ups or lean Democratic. Uh, maybe they voted for Joe Biden by three or four points. Maybe they voted for Donald Trump by three or four points. Those kinds of districts in an average political climate, you would say that the Democrats would win the majority of those districts that Biden won by three or four, and they'd have a fighting chance in the districts that Trump won by three or four and pick up at least a few of them. Uh, but when you have a political climate that's so strong for the Republicans like we have right now, you basically end up in a situation where Republicans are probably going to win all of those seats that Trump won by three or four. Democrats, even though on paper they should be competitive, probably aren't going to have a very good chance this year. They may have a good chance sometime further along in the decade. And then all those districts that voted for Biden by three or four, uh, I think those are going to end up being districts that they voted narrowly Democratic in 2020. This time around, they probably vote narrowly Republican. Maybe they go back to the Democrats later in the decade when things are better overall for Democrats. But in a year like what this year seems to be shaping up to be, I think you're going to see Republicans win most of those seats. So they're not only going to get a majority, but it should be a pretty substantial majority. They're not going to be in a situation like Democrats are in the House right now, where if two or three people are away, it starts to get dicey about whether you have enough votes for stuff. I think Republicans are going to most likely end up with a pretty comfortable majority. What, 15, 20, 25 seats? How many? I'll say 25. That's pretty comfortable. That's pretty comfortable <laughs> for the uh, Republican uh, leadership to have that uh, that uh, kind of a spread because they can even have a, a fairly large number to uh, have opposing views and still come out ahead. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's turn to the uh, Biden approval numbers. He has not turned out to be a very popular president um, so far, and uh, the numbers have not really improved a lot. I would have thought that in some cases, uh, usually when we go to war, people, uh, and we are sort of in a war, whether we're actually there or not in this uh, matter of the Ukraine, uh, but usually the president picks up some support. That's not happening this time, or at least I'm sensing it's not. What are you seeing in your polling? No, definitely no bounce for Biden. His approval ratings in the low 40s nationally, and it's in the mid to upper 30s in North Carolina. And there's a couple key dynamics going on with his approval rating. We're finding his approval numbers to be even worse uh, than Donald Trump's were at similar points during his presidency. And the key to that really is the extent to which his own base sticks with him. Even though Trump always had bad approval numbers, you would generally find that 85, 90% of people who voted for Trump still thought that he was doing a good job. You did not have much defection among Trump voters saying, oh, I don't like what he's doing now. But with Biden, you're more likely to see his approval number among Biden voters in, in the 70s or in the low 80s. And it's not that there's a lot of Biden voters who say they disapprove of the job he's doing. On our average poll, maybe five, 6% of Biden voters say they think he's doing a bad job. 
But what we see a lot of that we didn't see a lot of with Trump is uncertainty among Biden's base about whether he's doing a good job or not. One thing that's a hallmark of Trump voters is a lack of uncertainty. That is not something that uh, they need to worry about too much. With Biden, you'll often on a poll see 15, 20 percent of Biden voters say they're not sure if he's doing a good job or not. And because his numbers are so much worse with his own people than Trump's were because of that uncertainty, that's why his approval numbers are lower. And then the other piece of it is certainly nobody who voted against Biden has decided over the last couple of years that they like him now. His approval rating with Trump voters is like one, two percent. So when you're losing a fair amount of your own base, or at least having a fair amount of ambiguity from your own base, and you're not picking up anyone across party lines, that's how you end up in this situation where you have an approval rating in the low 40s nationally, upper 30s North Carolina, and you also have a base that's not that enthusiastic. Uh, one problem for Democrats this fall, I think, is going to be whether less intense Democratic voters even turn out to vote or not, because they're just not in a situation right now where they feel like they want to run through a wall for Joe Biden. Well, of course, we're more than two years away from a presidential election. But uh, assuming that Trump runs, and it would appear that at this point in time, it looks like he is, and assuming that Biden runs again, uh, what does Biden have to do in the next two years to, during that two-year interval, to uh, maintain his uh, election and be reelected as an incumbent? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think something that's really important to remember is that in 2010, things were so bad for Democrats, it seemed like there was no chance Obama would get reelected. In 2018, things were so bad for Republicans, it seemed like there was no chance for Trump to get reelected. And even though he didn't get reelected, it was pretty darn close. So just because things are particularly bad for a president and his party in the midterm election doesn't necessarily mean things can't turn around in the next couple of years. And I think something that helped both Obama in 2012 and Trump in 2020 was when the other party got control of Congress, or at least the House, uh, they started doing things that were really extreme that sort of reminded voters, oh, you know, I have a lot of, in 2012, it reminded voters, oh, I have a lot of concerns about Republicans, even if I don't love Obama. And then in 2020, it was a lot of voters saying, oh, I have a lot of concerns about Democrats, even if I don't love Trump. So the best thing that Biden is probably going to have going for him uh, in 2023 and 2024 is having that sort of foil of an most likely very extreme Republican Congress, probably making lots of news every day for bad reasons. And that stuff's going to break through when Republicans are in the majority in a way that it doesn't break through when Republicans are in the minority. Uh, in 2012, Democrats had a lot of success sort of running against the Tea Party. And the Tea Party had been a good thing for Republicans in 2010, but then when Republicans got in charge of a bunch of stuff and went really, really far to the right, the Tea Party came, became sort of a boogeyman uh, that Democratic voters responded to and got engaged by and sort of returned to the fold in a way that I'm quite sure uh, that Republicans will provide a similar sort of outlet for Democrats to reunify and sort of get back the kind of fear that they had through the Trump years. So I think the biggest ally that uh, Biden is going to have over the next two years after this year's election is how the Republicans behave. Because at the end of the day, elections are a choice. And if you had a straight up election, do you like Biden or not? 
Biden would lose. But if the election is, well, do you like Biden or do you like these really extreme Republicans? Biden might have a fighting chance in a way that he doesn't when you sort of think about it in a vacuum about whether people like him or not. We uh, Most of the economists are forecasting either a slowdown in the economy or what might be a very mild recession. And most of them are saying it will be a mild recession if we have one. And actually, most of the economists say we probably need one to bring inflation under control. But that's going to happen at the end of this year in the first quarter. So that would give President Biden almost a year and a half for the economy to be on the upswing uh, before he is subject to, uh, to the uh, next election. Uh, that could have a big impact on uh, how his chances are for re-election, I would think, uh, because basically uh, it seems like almost everything you're saying is that the public is really more concerned about the economy than anything else. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that, that if something happens where voters get into a better mood about the economy than they are right now, that very much will play into Biden's hands. And I think that happened to some extent with Trump in 2020. He obviously ended up making the election much closer in the end uh, than it had been earlier in the year. And I think a big part of uh, why he picked up some ground and made it closer is people were feeling like things were okay economically and they were willing to put aside Uh, some of the stuff that they didn't like about Trump with his behavior and his extremism and his handling of COVID and that sort of stuff, if they were feeling better about the economy. A better economy tends to make everything better. So uh, I think with that timeline that you outlined, you you, you make a very savvy point that it's possible that the first half of next year is going to be the worst for Biden. And then, then over the last year and a half before he actually has to appear on the ballot, he may have a chance to get the country into a better mood, get the country feeling more like he sort of uh, successfully shepherded the country through a difficult time in its history, and maybe have people feeling a little bit more uh, pleasantly inclined towards him than they are right now. Okay, we President, uh, former President Trump continues to insist that he was robbed, that the, there was a, a lack of uh, election integrity. Uh, in your polling, uh, does uh, how, how, how does the American people feel about that? Is he harping on an issue that's not going to change anybody's opinion or should he, and should he change his rhetoric and just go to something else? Is this well, helping he should, <laughs> I don't think it's helping him or hurting him. I mean, something that's always just been a fundamental truth about Trump's following over the years is that it's almost cult-like. And if he says something, his people will generally go along with it. So we find very few people who voted for Trump who say that they disagree with him that the election was stolen or who say that they think the insurrection was a bad thing. Something that's sort of been frustrating for us as a Democratic polling company over the course of this year and last year. So I think a lot of Democrats in Washington have the idea that the insurrection really turned off average voters and that the voting fraud stuff really turns off average voters and that we should make a centerpiece of our Democratic campaigns in 2022, sort of messaging about the insurrection and pushing back against the voter fraud claims and that sort of thing. And we just find that that stuff doesn't move the needle at all. Uh, There's nobody who uh, would vote Republican anyway who then says, oh, I'm really concerned about the insurrection. I'll vote Democratic now. So it's sort of something that, yeah, I guess the Democratic base really ginned up and certainly makes Democratic voters really angry. 
but it's not that important a part of people's day-to-day lives. And I think because it doesn't pass the test of being something that's a very big part of people's day-to-day lives, I just don't think Democrats are going to be able to run a successful campaign this fall making a big deal about uh, Trump and the voter fraud and the insurrection and that sort of thing. It's, it's just not something that's going to move the needle. In other words, most people have their view on that and are not subject to change it. Yeah, and I think that uh, I think for the most part, people are just moving on from that. That's something that happened a long time ago, and they're much more concerned about inflation and gas prices than what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. Well, that's interesting. And uh, we've got one final segment of Carolina Newsmakers coming up. And during that segment, we want to talk a little bit about the uh, the issues that you think the uh, uh, GOP will focus on, the issues the Democrats should focus on. And also, of course, uh, I want to talk about my favorite subject about uh, why so many people are registering unaffiliated these days, not only in North Carolina, but across the country. And we'll do that with our guest, Tom Jensen, who's the director of public policy polling. We'll do that right after these messages. Olivia from Washington. laid off and trying to keep our little kids from realizing that mommy and daddy haven't eaten in a while. Roger, from California. I'm grateful we could afford our son's surgery. I'm nervous that now we can't really afford food. Daniel, from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Donna, from Louisiana. The storm just hit, and we went from donating to the food bank to needing it. Keisha from South Carolina. I've been skipping meals so my two kids can eat, but filling up on water doesn't really work. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. We are delighted to have Tom Jensen with us, especially because we have a primary election coming up. A reminder that a number of the stations that carry this program across the state carry the 30-minute version. And if you are listening to one of those stations, there are two segments that you're not hearing that you can hear by going to carolinanewsmakers.com. And those two segments are segregated. Or you can share the entire broadcast with a friend or listen to it again if you missed part of it. That's carolinanewsmakers.com. Tom Jensen is our guest, as we said. And Tom, I, you know, one of the favorite subjects I like to bring up because I think it's so intriguing is uh, how the list of unaffiliated voters, voters who are not registering as either Democrats or Republicans, uh, are, are, are tallying up here in North Carolina. And I, I sense it's happening sort of across the country. Of course, all of these people have uh, views and opinions. And, and, you know, I think it's pretty clear that most of them lean one way or the other. What kind of research are you doing on unaffiliated voters? And why are people 
uh, registering unaffiliated in such large numbers? Yeah, well, first of all, I think that uh, we have major listeners look like they knew something ahead of time because we've been talking for the last decade about how someday there's going to be more unaffiliated in North Carolina than Democrats or Republicans. And that has happened now in the last few months where unaffiliated are now the biggest voting group in the state, which is something that I bet we've talked about a dozen times over the, yeah. the years. So I'm, I'm glad we got that right. Um, but I think the answer to why there are so many more unaffiliated is simply that people think that both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are terrible and they don't want to associate themselves with it one way or the other. And you're absolutely right that most voters do even if they're unaffiliated, pretty strongly vote Democratic or pretty strongly vote Republican. But what you have is a lot of conservative voters maybe who think that the Republican Party is lame. So they register unaffiliated. They still vote Republican, but they don't want to call themselves Republicans. And the same thing for the Democrats. And I think this was very well exemplified by Bernie Sanders. He's obviously uh, very liberal and his supporters are very liberal, but they don't really like the institutional Democratic Party uh, so even though they will vote for Democrats, they don't want to identify themselves as Democrats. One data point I saw in the last two months that was particularly fascinating is that more than 75% of newly registered students at UNC Chapel Hill, which is, of course, such a bastion of liberalism, are registering unaffiliated. And it's like 23% Democrats and 2% Republicans, but three and four students in this liberal area are registering unaffiliated. And I think that just shows the extent to which, especially among younger voters, there's just really no appeal in the institutional political parties at all, uh, and that they don't want to have anything to do with them. But to your broader point, most unaffiliated always vote Republican. Most unaffiliated always vote Democratic. One of those two things or the other. And then the ones who are in the middle are what I call the cranky voters. They're just always mad at whoever's in charge. So they just move back and forth between voting for whoever is out of power. So that dynamic was very good for Democrats in North Carolina in 2018. And that dynamic will be very good for Republicans in North Carolina in 2022. One of the things that's been a, sort of a mystery to me, you mentioned the fact that unaffiliated uh, as in North Carolina, unaffiliated can choose which primary to vote for uh, year by year. Uh, in the uh, primary elections, but you also mentioned that most or uh, a larger number of unaffiliated voters don't sh uh, show up for the primary election. Wonder why that is. And the follow-up question to that is, why do the candidates in their ads not appeal to the unaffiliated <laughs> voters right straight out and just say, look, if you're unaffiliated, uh, you don't want to vote for so-and-so, so vote my way this time around. Yeah, so it's not a 100% rule, but for the most part, unaffiliated voters are less engaged than people who do register as Democrats or Republicans. For the most part, uh, if you register as a Democrat or a Republican, that's an indication that you have pretty strong political views that make you go into one category or the other. And I think if you don't have strong views one way or the other, you're more likely to end up in that unaffiliated column and you're less likely to be somebody who's going to vote in a primary election. But this is actually a great segue into what may be the most interesting primary election in North Carolina on Tuesday, which is Madison Cawthorn's race in the 11th district, because one dynamic that's going on there is a lot of unaffiliated are voting in the Republican primary. Most of the time, you'll see maybe half of people pick the Democratic ballot, half of people pick the Republican ballot, 
in that race, almost everybody is picking the Republican ballot. And it's going to be fascinating to see if that's something that ends up putting Madison Cawthorn out of office, if all these unaffiliated voters who are showing up to vote against him end up being the thing that put one of his opponents over the top. It's been a very interesting situation for Madison Cawthorn over the last couple months. In March, he was at like 50% something in the polls, which is still pretty weak for an incumbent. But since you only need to get 30% of the vote to be renominated, even though 50 something percent is weak, you're still going to get renominated. And as his scandals have just cascaded and cascaded and cascaded in recent weeks, now polling is showing him only in the 30s in the primaries. He's still winning and he'd still win if the election was today. Uh, but he's getting closer and closer to dropping below 30%, where either A, he could end up in a runoff, or B, one of his other opponents could actually pass him for percentage of the vote. If Cawthorn gets bailed out and wins another term, it's going to be two things that did it for him. One, that he has so many different opponents and support is just splitting too much across all those different opponents rather than going to one person who can overtake Cawthorn. The other thing is going to be having that 40% threshold that it used to be now down to a 30% threshold. Because if he wins with 32% of the vote, if he had have to have if he had have to have a runoff with getting 32% in round one, he loses a runoff 60-40 at the best. If you support Madison Cawthorn, you already support Madison Cawthorn. There's not going to be a lot of people who don't support Madison Cawthorn right now, but then decide in the runoff, oh, I'll vote for him over the other alternative. It's clear that about two-thirds of the voters in his district don't like Madison Cawthorn, but he might get bailed out by the field being so large. And it's going to be fascinating to see if those unaffiliated voters voting against him because he's an extremist are enough to push him below 30 or push him into second place. If he survives the Republican primary, what are his chances in the general election? I think he'll be very strong for the general election. I think he We'll have, I mean, this, this, is, this is very emblematic of where we are in American politics these days. I think if he survives the primary, he's going to go into the general election with a 25% favorability rating with the overall electorate in the district, and he's going to have a 60% unfavorability rating with the overall electorate in the district. So he's going to have a minus 35 favorability rating, and I think he's going to win anyway, because I think at the end of the day, Almost all of those Republicans who don't like him will end up deciding that they would rather vote for him than a Democrat. And that is basically the key to what happened with Trump uh, outperforming his poll numbers in both 2016 and 2020. So there's a lot of Republicans who found Trump really distasteful. They might not have liked him. But at the end of the day, they convinced themselves that he was better than a Democrat. And I think the same thing will happen for Cawthorn. I could be wrong, uh, but I, I think in this political climate, a district that's pretty strongly Republican, it's just very unlikely that the general election is going to be competitive, even if Cawthorn himself is incredibly unpopular. Just going back to what we talked about earlier, where partisanship and tribalism and that sort of thing matter much more than individual candidates and their popularity. That's interesting that someone who has such a high degree of controversy, uh, even in his own party, can get reelected. Yeah, it just speaks to it just speaks to the fact that what motivates voters now more than anything else, especially 
especially the strong Democratic partisans and the strong Republican partisans, is they feel stronger about hating the other side uh, than they do about anything else. So I just think there's going to be a lot of Republicans who have to decide, well, who do I hate more? Do I hate Madison Cawthorn more or do I hate Democrats more? And I think by and large, those people are going to end up deciding that they hate Democrats more than they hate Madison Cawthorn. Interesting. Well, uh, okay, so North Carolina is recognized right now as a, a purple state. And of course, if you look at the presidential elections of the past uh, four elections, especially, it shows that to be true. Is North Carolina growing uh, either more Republican or more more independent or more uh, Democrat as it grows and continues to uh, be a factor uh, as far as national politics is concerned? Are we going to remain right down the middle and be basically a purple state or we're going to lean one way or the other? I think North Carolina is definitely in an average election cycle moving forward going to be a 50-50 sort of state. If the country itself is pretty evenly divided in a given election year, I think North Carolina will be pretty evenly divided in election year as well. Uh, I'm sure that Republicans are going to have a very strong year in the state this year. And I'm sure after that, there's probably going to be some messaging and people claiming that North Carolina is not purple anymore and it's a red state and that sort of thing. But I think basically North Carolina is a red state and a red year, uh, and that will certainly be the case. Uh, and I think that the ceiling is higher for Republicans in North Carolina. I think Republicans can win a Senate race in North Carolina by eight points in a year like this, whereas I don't think Democrats can win a Senate race by eight points in North Carolina, probably even if the political climate was this good for Democrats nationally. But if you ask me to just very easily sum up North Carolina in one number in terms of its partisan orientation. I think we are a state where Republicans have a two-point advantage. Um, so in your average year, Republicans are going to win by about two. In a Republican year like this, they'll win by a lot more. In a Democratic year, Democrats have a good fighting chance to pull out some close victories. And I would be surprised if that sort of overall dynamic changes very much in the near future. You've got about a minute to... Uh, uh follow up on what you said earlier about North Carolina is not the only state that in their redistricting uh, actually ends up uh, more partisan than ever before. I'm sorry, I just got COVID brain. Can you, I just like totally <laughs> uh, lost. Well, you know, I, we've said that about you several times, but I'm, you know, I'm not going to pick on you. And actually, you don't have time now to answer the question in the first place. So uh, but basically, I was saying, uh, do you think that the, uh, uh, the, the GOP or the Democrats uh, will change their philosophy much in the next two years? No, I think for the most part, both parties are very self-assured. The one thing I could see changing is that Democrats may try to nominate more moderate candidates in their primaries moving forward if they have a really bad year, uh, because I think that the left will get blamed. Uh, but I think Republicans will be full speed ahead. I'm sorry I caught you in your unawares. But uh, anyway, we certainly appreciate your taking time to be with us. Tom Jensen, Director of Public Policy Polling. Again, if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and do just that. Jason Kong has produced our program, and he promises me that he'll have another interesting guest next week on the same group of stations all across North Carolina. So the next week, same time, same station. Have a good week, everybody. 
Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.